good morning, Northbrook. If you've got a Bible, we are going to head today to the Gospel of John, chapters 15 uh, and 16. If you're new or newer to Northbrook, welcome. Or if you've not been here in a while, we are making our way through the Gospel of John this summer. So today we do come to John chapter 15 and 16. Uh, Our series is called All is Grace. The Gospel of John chapter 1, John writes that Jesus came full of grace and full of truth. And so everything Jesus did flowed from those two realities. So now I'm going to just ask you to pause me for a moment as we open our, our hearts, but also our minds to receive all that God wants to say to us this weekend. Lord, would you challenge us? Would you encourage us? Would you help us to become more like you? Amen. So I know this is probably going to come as a shock, but when I was a kid in school, I was not very popular. I know, it's shocking. I wasn't one of the cool kids, um, not in elementary, not in middle school, not in high school. In elementary, I was basically unseen. Like, just no one noticed me or seemed to care. In middle school, I was bullied by two guys in particular. And I can tell you, it is very exhausting always looking over your shoulder. In high school, I filled out a bit. Um, the fat was replaced with muscle. Uh, I grew my hair really long. And I just looked angry all the time. And so no one really messed with me. But then, my sophomore year, I became a Christian, which made things really interesting because now I was the religious kid with the religious convictions, and that opened up a whole new venue of ridicule and mocking and judging. Truth is, most of us, if we're honest, we like to be liked. Now, you may say, well, I don't care what people think. Yes, you do, because everybody does at some level. Uh, We want to fit in. We want to have some semblance of, of status. American culture is all about being seen. And sometimes we will go to great lengths and great, uh, expense to be seen, to be known, to be popular. And yet, even as adults. And yet, the way of Jesus It's not always popular, and it's not always easy. Now, I will um, say that today may not be my most um, feel-good message, but sometimes I think it's my duty to simply point out reality. I want to begin today uh, all the way back in John chapter 6, and we'll work our way to John chapter 15. But there's a scene in in John chapter 6 that I think sets up where we're going. John chapter 6, Jesus is with his disciples, and he says to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood 
remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live in the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. On hearing this, many of the disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Where that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what is it, the son of, then what if you see the son of man ascend to where he was before? The spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. And yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus in this portion is introducing some difficult things and I want us to put ourselves for just a moment in the place of these early disciples because we've got to remember that in John chapter 6 Jesus had not celebrated the Passover therefore the institute of communion had not been established. Jesus had not broken bread and offered wine so as the disciples are hearing this Jesus says you need to eat my flesh you need to drink my blood I mean, think about that for a moment. Your leader says, basically, you need to become a cannibal. Because that's probably what many of them heard when Jesus was teaching this. But what Jesus was actually saying, unless you participate in my suffering, unless you align with me, then there is no life in you. So Jesus is misunderstood. And because he's misunderstood, he's deserted by many of those that are following because, like, this is hard. This is hard stuff. They even said, the disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Like, who can, who can do this? Then Jesus, in John chapter 14, begins speaking with his disciples about his death. He's going to go away. Then he says, there are some that are going to hate me. And because they hate me, they're going to hate you. Uh, so we come to John chapter 15, verse 18, and Jesus continues. If the world hates you, Keep in mind, it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They, retreat, they will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among you the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. So here's Jesus' pep talk to his disciples. I'm going away. They hate me. And by the way, because they hate me, they're going to hate you too. 
and that's okay. I mean, that's the, that's the pep talk. Things are going to get hard, not easier. Now, to maybe give some perspective here for those of us that are alive right now, there are some places in the world right now where it is really, really difficult to be a Christian. There are some places in the world right now where you're not just disliked or disagreed with, but you're actually hated. I stumbled across a ministry this week called Open Door, and one of the activities of this ministry is they track the 50 most persecuted countries where it is really difficult to be a Christian. The top three right now, and it's always changing, are North Korea, Afghanistan, and Somalia. I mean, right now, in this very moment, in North Korea, the punishment for being a Christian is death. No questions asked. If you're not killed right away, you're sent to a concentration camp. And by some estimates, there are currently, right now this morning, between fifty and 70,000 people that are in North Korean concentration camps simply because of what they believe. In Afghanistan, if you are a Christian, you are murdered. If you convert from Islam to Christianity, your family has the duty to perform an honor killing in which they hunt you down and take your life so they can restore honor to the family. And in Somalia, if you're a Christian, you're intimidated, you're killed, and in some cases the women are raped and forced to marry Muslim Muslim men so they can be deconverted. It's one thing to hear kind of these statistics, but it's quite another to meet real living people. I was in India a couple of years ago and I met a man who was a pastor living in northern India. Radical Hindus invaded his village and because he was a Christian, they killed his wife. He escaped barely with his life and yet he still chooses to follow Jesus. Ironically, it's in some of these places that are the most persecuted that the Christian church is growing the fastest. Jean Veith, who is a author and a professor, once at Concordia, wrote this about that reality. One of the great paradoxes in Christian history is that the church is most pure in times of cultural hostility. When things are easy and good, that is when the church most often goes astray. When Christianity seems identical with the culture, and even with the church, and even when the church seems to be enjoying its greatest earthly success, then it is its weakest. Conversely, when the church encounters hardship, persecution, and suffering, then it is closest to its crucified Lord. Then there are fewer hypocrites and nominal believers among its members. And then the faith of Christians burns most intently. The call of Christ is a call to be different. And while we, I don't believe, are remotely experiencing what others experience around the world as a daily reality, the message of Christianity in the Western world is being scrutinized more and more and met with hostility more and more. And I don't know where it's going. I don't foresee us becoming North Korea anytime soon. But the way of Jesus is really not all that popular in many circles. I mean, there are ways of culture and morality that my conscience as a follower of Jesus Christ will not allow me to embrace. 
or support. And so I hear the words of Jesus, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. Now at a grand level, the world hated Jesus because of some of the things that he taught. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is truth. Jesus is the way. Those are some pretty unpopular things in Jesus' day as they are today. When Jesus uses the phrase, the world, he's referencing a system, a way of living. He's referencing values and beliefs and morals that are out of alignment with God's best for us as his creation. Now, we've got to keep in mind, God doesn't hate the world. In the Gospel of John chapter 3, Jesus even said, God actually loves the world. Same phrase. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son because his desire is to transform and redeem all of creation and he uses his church to do it. And so Jesus himself offers a better way to be in the world. For, for us, there is this call, this challenge to be something better, to be something different. The most prolific of Jesus' teaching on these things is found in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 opens with a series of statements that we call the Beatitudes. And towards the end of those Beatitudes, this is what Jesus says. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of things about you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. In the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when someone says, you're crazy for what you believe, or insults you, or says things about you that actually aren't true, simply because of what you believe, you can actually say, well, I guess that means I'm blessed. I mean, Jesus does have some hard things to say in the Sermon on the Mount about the way we live our life. He has hard things to say about the way we handle hate and anger. He equates them to murder. He has some hard things to say about the severity of of actually keeping your word and about adultery and divorce and sexuality and giving to the poor and, and judging others. So Jesus himself, I mean, gives some pretty clear instruction in the Sermon on the Mount as to what we're to do when we experience hardship Not just, not in life, but specifically for our faith. The truth is, sometimes I can be my own worst enemy. Sometimes you can be your own worst enemy. And sometimes Christianity and the Christian church can be its own worst enemy. And here's what I mean by that. And I I say this with as much love, because you know I love you, and I, I want us to be better, and I believe in what we're doing. But living our conscience as followers of Jesus Christ, is not permission to be a self-righteous jerk. And that's where we say, amen. I can be morally conscious without being legalistically condemning. Because it's in the name of Jesus that I want to treat all people well in kind because they're created in his image and likeness. Even those who disagree with me, 
Even those who insult me, because listen, I have had people disagree with me, insult me, call me names, and make assumptions about me that are not true simply because I'm a follower of Christ. Now when that happens, what I want to do naturally is go into fight mode. I mean, we either go into fight or flight. I want to go into fight mode. That's my default. Many of you have heard, like I'm half Sicilian, but my mom's maiden name is McManus. I'm also half Irish. And there's a reason Notre Dame has as their mascot, the fighting Irish. It's in my blood. So when we find ourselves in an unpopular place because of our faith, this is what Jesus says from the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. You ever been slapped? Like, a slap is an insult. If you want to hurt someone, you use a closed fist. Listen, I have been slapped. I'm not going to tell you why. Uh, I'm not going to tell you who. It was not my wife. But I've been slapped. And did I deserve it? Probably. What I can tell you I didn't do is turn to them my other cheek as well. If anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt. We'll hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, then go two. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people... What are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is hard because I'm not naturally wired this way. Now, to be fair, some of the references Jesus makes are very cultural. When Jesus has an eye for an eye, like he's referencing the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was a series of practices for reparations if someone wronged you. And so he's referencing the Old Testament. And when he says if someone forces you to go one mile, go two, he's making reference to a a practice in his culture that if a a soldier, a Roman soldier, uh, wanted you to carry their backpack, you were obligated to give them a break for at least one mile. You had to carry all their stuff for a mile. It was law. And so Jesus says if they ask you to carry their stuff one mile, then, then go two. So Jesus lays out this plan. I believe that some of the ridicule and persecution the Christian experiences is because culture hates our way of life. But there are some cases that we bring it on ourselves because we don't do this. Now if we go back to the story, Jesus is going to say to his disciples, I'm leaving. I'm going to die. I'm going to go to heaven. And listen, guys, it's going to be hard. People are going to hate you. People are actually going to kill you. Most of Jesus' disciples were murdered for their faith. But, he says, I'm not going to leave you alone. 
the Holy Spirit's going to come and help you. Verse 26, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you must also testify for you have been with me from the beginning. So things may feel unstable, but the Holy Spirit will guide you. He'll give you the words to speak, the actions to take, the steps to move. John chapter 16, verse 1. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. Because listen, sometimes it's just easier to give up. Because they're going to put you out of the synagogue. Even the religious people are going to be against you. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. They would do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I've said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of this world is now standing condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive, the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. So that's a lot of words. So I'm going to summarize it. Jesus is going to die. He's going to rise. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to guide you. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be killed. And it's going to be okay. The scripture reveals God as Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as one of our creedal commitments of our faith. The Holy Spirit is God's presence in the world. When we speak of God's presence in the world, we're making reference to the Holy Spirit, uh, something found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for Holy Spirit is rauk. It means wind or breath. When we read in Genesis that God's Spirit hovered over the waters, we're hearing reference to the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, it's the word pneuma. It means spirit, wind, breath, fire. It means all of these things. And the Spirit's going to come, and he's going to bring radical, radical transformation. He's going to guide you in being different. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of 2 Corinthians, Now the Lord is spirit, and when the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with an ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit. He will transform us, and he will guide us. Verse 13, but when he, the spirit, comes, he will guide you in truth. You ever been on vacation to a historical place and you hired a guide to show you around? When I was in Israel a couple of years ago, um, 
Israel's fascinating place. I'm leading a trip in November. I've got some spots. If you want to go, let me know. Israel is a desert. And there's a lot of rocks and a lot of dirt. When I went to Israel, we worked our way through the Bible geographically. So we started in the Old Testament, went out into the desert. And you know what's in the desert? Dirt and rocks. And that's it. We would go from site to site to site, and there would be a pile of rocks. And then we go to the next site, and there'll be a pile of rocks. And then we go to the next site, and there was a pile of rocks that looked like the pile of rocks at the first site and the second site. What made the difference was our guide. Because our guide told us what the pile of rocks actually used to be. And what happened at the pile of rocks. And this pile of rocks used to be an altar. And this hole in the ground used to be the foundation of this building. A knowledgeable guide makes all the difference. Because a knowledgeable guide can help you discern what you're looking at. A knowledgeable guide can help you see what you cannot see on your own. Discernment is one of the gifts the Holy Spirit brings because he helps us to understand and see what God is up to, what God is saying. The Spirit guides us in truth and dependably depicts how things really are. Because sometimes... The way we see something is not the way God sees it. And in that case, the Holy Spirit convicts us. Conviction is a word that we use spiritually and religiously to describe God challenging us to see things a different way. A few years ago, I received an email from an individual. And they wanted to know my stance on a particular issue of morality. Email is a terrible way to discuss anything of depth. And from that moment on, I never will discuss weighty things on email. But they asked me what I believed about a certain issue. And I kindly and graciously, and I felt biblically, just responded. Because, you know, I was asked a question. And I thought they wanted an honest answer, so I gave it to them. And then they responded to me with this spew of hatred and vile name-calling and all this stuff, and I went into fighting Irish mode. I started off as a cherub of grace and started to type this vile response defending my honor and God's glory. And as I typed, I felt the direction and conviction of the Holy Spirit who basically said to me, leave it alone. And so I deleted the entire email and I just left it alone. Because here's what the Holy Spirit reveals to all of us. In the end, God wins. In John chapter 16, Jesus says this, I've told you these things so that you can have peace. In this world, listen, you're gonna have trouble. Like I can't, Jesus couldn't say it any more plainly. You're going to have trouble, but take heart, for I've overcome the world. How many of you like winning? 
All of us. I was in Michigan last week. I had to go pick up my son. He was with his grandparents for a few days. And I stayed a couple extra days because I hadn't seen one of my brothers in a while. And on the last day, we had like a man day. So me and my dad and my brothers and Ryan and all the, the male grandkids, we went to Top Golf. If you don't know what Top Golf is, it's this crazy new thing. Whoever invented it's going to be a billionaire. It's the combination of the game of golf and a video game. It's three tiers and you get a bay and golf clubs and there's a bunch of these golf balls that have chips in them. And so you can use any golf club you want. You you hit out into the range. There's all these big holes and the ball is supposed to go into one of the holes and you get points. And then it shows up on this computer screen and you play against each other. We played five games. And I came in last place all five games. And my brothers are not gracious winners. And I was getting frustrated. And they laughed at me. And I said, no, man, I just ate some nachos. My hands are greasy. And it just was very, very frustrating to lose. Because I don't like to lose. Nobody likes to lose. Not every game. We like to win. If you're a basketball fan and you like the Bucks, like this is your year. Because they won. My daughter went down to the Deer District in almost every playoff game. Did I go? Of course not. I would not go. I don't want to be around 65,000 drunk people. I, that's not my scene. Oh, but I'm glad they won. I don't really care about basketball. I'm not a basketball fan. But I like the hometown team winning. It's amazing how many people who six months ago we're not basketball fans, all of a sudden are dressed head to toe in Bucks gear. Why? Because we like to be a winner. We like to associate with winners. So let me just let you in on a little secret. In the end, God wins. In the end, he overcomes. In the end, he's on top. You're on the winning team. So sometimes the life of faith is hard and it's okay. Maybe your friends and family, they make fun of you. They ridicule you. And in some extreme cases, they don't want anything to do with you. Or maybe at work, you won't compromise your values and what you believe and it is cost you something. Maybe someone has accused you of being something that you're not simply because of your faith. When that happens, because it will, I'm going to offer you two really simple next steps. The first is, when that happens, whisper that person's name up in a prayer to God. Lord, would you, would you just bless Joe? I know they said awful things, but would you just bless him? And then you can step back and say, and I'm blessed because blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so Lord, we take that this morning as a promise. I pray for all of us here that have experienced some of this, that you would help us to 
to not take it personal, to not go into fight mode, but to hear the words of Jesus. And maybe even more importantly, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world where it's not about being insulted, it's about being killed simply because of what they believe. And we pray for them this morning, O oh God, as a church. Would you help us, O oh God, to be a faithful presence in this world, a faithful witness? Would we represent you well in all that we say and in all that we do because we know we represent you and it is for your glory. Amen.